bacterial protein was reduced whenever animals were stressed or annoyed by the horn fly presence, right? So that's a metabolic inefficiency in my eyes where like more than 50% of the protein that reaches the small intestine comes from microbial fermentation. And if this is being reduced by, by these stress factors, it could be like potentially leading to economic losses, uh, metabolic inefficiencies. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like R Yeast 40, Ruminal and Intestinal Double Modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Victus Transition from DSM Animal Nutrition and Health can help your cattle get the beta carotene they need to improve fertility. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. Good afternoon and welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. Uh, today, great opportunity to have Alex Sanchez with us uh, from the University of New Mexico. Uh, Alex, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you today? Very Thanks well. Thanks for the invitation. Likewise, likewise. Uh, really uh, looking forward to having you today. Uh, Alex has uh, become a good friend and colleague uh, over the past few years as we've gotten to know him and his work. Uh, his collaboration at the university um, working with flies. So um, we, we, we all are bothered by flies, whether if it's in our house or on, on our farms, especially on our dairies, calves, cows. And really, if we, we look to uh, using data uh, to make decisions, uh, overall, there's not a lot of data out there. There's not a lot of uh, experience with flies. There's plenty of experience, but not a lot of really solid information of, of what, what do we do and, and the economic impact of these pests. So, uh, Alex, can you uh, give us a little bit of background of, of uh, you're, you're originally from, from Mexico, I'm now studying in the U.S., and uh, you have a lot of experience both in Mexico and, and the USA, but give us a little bit about your background, uh, what you're doing now, and then we'll, we'll get into some of the details of your research, and then most importantly for our listeners, the practical applications of what do we do to get rid of these uh, these pests? Well, thanks for that introduction, Mark. And starting with my background, I went to college down in Mexico back in 2009. I finished a college degree in veterinary sciences in Torreon, Coahuila, uh, around 2014. After that, I had the opportunity to work for the dairy industry for a little bit over two years. I had the experience with a uh, mineral company, as well as the, directly with the dairy farm industry. I worked for a farm. Uh, I was in charge of 
fresh cows. I was in charge of the health department in Delicious Chihuahua. I was helping like a, one of the holy cows that works up in that region. And after working in that area and in that amount of time, I realized that I wanted to become a nutritionist. Like the nutritionist was the most important guy visiting like the farm on a constant basis. So I wanna I wanted to give it a shot. And I decided to pursue a, a graduate degree in the States. So I got the opportunity to start a, a nutrition degree, a room and a nutrition degree in New Mexico State University back in 2016. Uh, I started working with cattle grazing winter with pasture. We used uh, cannulated cattle to measure uh, ruminal uh, fermentation characteristics and animal performance. Uh, however, by those days, I was running out of funding, and I got in touch with who's my my boss currently, Dr. Brandon Smythe, and he liked my profile. Back in Mexico, I was working over 60, 60 hours per week, and when I started working here in my grad, uh, in grad school, it was not as hard as working in the dairy farm, so I, I guess we matched. I, I guess we clicked and we started working pretty comfortably, uh, even though it was not in uh, uh, animal science. Like my academic uh, degree was in, in ruminant nutrition. However, like to make a living, I started working in this veterinary entomology research lab where I'm currently employed. After that, I had the opportunity to finish my master's and he offered to economical funding, even though I was still focused on grooming and nutrition. He was like, if you stay working here with me, I'll pay for your grad school. And that's where we started mixing and matching animal science ideas with vet entomology. We measured animal performance under, uh, um, how do you call those? Uh, I lost the name, artificially infested animals. So in this lab, we have the capacity to rear flies and we have screen rooms. So we have the capacity to control these fly populations uh, whenever we want. So more or less, that's how I started. No, Alex, I think that's a great background and, and, and uh, you know, uh, our fate or, or how we have some opportunity that maybe wasn't necessarily down uh, the path we expected or even had any experience or desire, i.e. working with flies. And, and now, you know, I know your, your passion for, for that uh, area and, and also uh, a lot of the findings. You said here, these controlled rooms. So, and I know we've visited a lot. You have visited some of our client farms here in, 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 in Torreon. And, uh, you know, those are the practical applications of the, uh, the different ways of controlling. One of just the uh, biology of the fly and how we control the environment, obviously pesticides, uh, different chemicals and so forth. But um, I think what's really interesting is your ability with these chambers to uh, know the impact of uh, small numbers of flies, for example, right? So maybe with that, can you can you tell us a little bit about, you know, describe to the, the audience here, okay, you, you have this cow in a chamber and you can actually apply X number of flies and then uh, measure aggressive responses and even production parameters, correct? Exactly, yes. It's like a uh, 10 by 10 feet uh, chamber. It's like yeah, two and a half meters by two and a half meters, more or less. 
So these chambers are screened. Uh, we move the, the, the flies to like whole chambers where they cannot fly anymore. So we have the capacity to count them and sex them. So this is how we measure product performance, right? In order to approve a product for uh, commercialization, EPA has to see those numbers and efficacy has to reach over 90%. So this is more or less how we run those trials. Uh, with my uh, background, I started including factors like as water intake, feed intake, uh, uh, other kinds of behaviors. Also, we had like a, a lot of cannulated animals. So I started measuring digestion characteristics when these animals are influenced by the presence of these, these bugs, right? And I guess we jumped that, but I specialize in horn fly, stable flies, and house flies. Those are the three main fly species that we rear in our, in our facility. And within those uh, fly species, we have uh, susceptible and resistant strains uh, to permethrin. These for uh, horn flies and for house flies. So whenever we're experiencing resistance on the field, we have the capacity to use these two populations and use regression lines to draw more or less where and when the resistance level is taking place in these populations. So Alex, can you can you give the the quick fly one on one course? Uh, these different flies. Some people know more about them, you know. But but of each of those uh, species that you work with. You know, where do they live and what do they do? And, and for the practical application for, for our dairy listeners, what do you need to worry about for those those individuals? Well, th- these, these flies are, are, are known as filth flies just because they, they can use any kind of filth to complete their developmental cycle. This includes uh, de- decaying matter as well as cattle manure. That's why they're constantly affecting our, our cattle productions. For confined cattle, we're going to be basically facing house flies and stable flies just because uh, they're a little bit more, uh, they adapt to other environments. On the other hand, the horn fly requires an undisturbed manure paddy to complete the life cycle. So this is going to be more prone to be fine in grazing cattle. Uh, basically, we have to be wary, right, because they're annoying our cattle. They change our intake behaviors their feeding behavior, so we're going to find bunching uh, bunch up of the cattle. They're not going to be eating or drinking water. They want to be getting all together to avoid like expo- exposed surfaces to these biting insects. So, again, in Torreón, in La Laguna, we're uh, spending a bunch of money trying to cool these cows down, and the effect or the secondary effect of these uh, flies is the bunch up of those herds. So we're not going to be able to lose uh, that heat as quick as we're wanting to, right? Sometimes they're uh, avoiding the feeders just because diets that include molasses uh, usually lure a bunch of houseflies. So they're not going to be comfortably eating. So they try to eat and get away instead of spending time at the bunker level. They, they just change or disturb the, the feeding patterns, the comfort patterns that we want for our cattle. So, Alex, a really common finding and uh, was even out in uh, South Dakota a week and a half ago visiting some farms and you walk into a, a freestall environment, comfortable, you know, either uh, tunnel ventilated, cross vent, and there's bunching. And, and, and you, you talk to the owner managers and say, yep, yeah, yeah, in, the, in the morning, 
cows are spread out by afternoon they're they're bunching it's it's not believed to be a heat effect right and and maybe you can't even see these biting leg flies there's just very few but they're obviously affecting these animals to the extent that they are showing really dramatic behavioral um, changes so talk a bit about these you know what are the things you know the the comments are well you know we can't spray our way out of it uh Obviously, trying to if it's a free stall that's near an end of a barn, keeping uh, high grasses cut down so there aren't places for these flies to then, um, you know, go and hide, so to speak. But give us some of the practical applications as we 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 really are challenged in some cases with you know clean environments, really good management, excellent air quality, and uh, and cow cooling. But then we have these these pests that are that are causing these. Uh, economic issues with our, our panel. To answer to that question, it's like, it's gonna be basically possibly control, control to a zero degree, right? So uh, basically it's using all the tools available to try to reduce those populations, right? Like you said, like managerial intervention, where we cut down grasses, bushes, uh, green areas where they can rest. By the situation that you're explaining, you cannot see a lot of flies, however, they're causing this effect. This might be caused by a stable fly. Some of these flies just feed on the animal and leave. So even though we're not observing a bunch of those flies on the animal, there's a lot of in the peri- per- perimeters. In the, in the prior, yeah, in the perimeter of the stable, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in the nearby areas, I guess, if you can cut that. <laughs> uh, so, yes, for every fly found in a stable fly, found in the, in the legs of a dairy cow, there's gonna be from 15 to 25 in the nearby areas. So we're dealing with a bunch of flies. Again, to cut down uh, those fly populations, it's starting with uh, cleaning of the facilities, reduce the uh, dirty or filthy areas where they can be completing their cycle to begin with. After that, we can move on to some of the common traps, scatter baits, parasitic wasps, and at the end, I would encourage the use of chemicals on animals. Of course, we're all trying to move and reduce the chemical usage uh, specifically on the animal, right? So I would encourage like the, an integrated pest management, use all the tools that we have available before uh, using any kind of uh, chemical control. Okay, excellent. So Alex, I think you know most, most all dairy farmers are, have heard of integrated pest management, right, as a, as a buzzword. But can we take a step back and can you actually, okay, outline, okay, wait, you, you, you named a few there, um, you know, parasitic wasps, chemicals, baits. Okay, can, can you outline, you know, each one and then just, just environmental control or outside of the stable control, cutting grasses, bushes, what have you. Can, can, we, can you outline each one of those and just, you know, what are the main points of, uh, and, of integration of those? And really, you know, your, your biggest hit, if you will, I think starting early in the season, right? We we're, we're we're probably for those of you listening who have major infestations, we're we're probably too late, right? You want to start some of these before fly season, but um, yeah, can you outline what what is included uh, when you talk about integrated pest management? Let's take a step back and and probably start from the beginning. Like how you start an integrated pest management is by identification. Probably here in the states in North America, we don't have a bunch of flies. We're basically dealing with these kind of uh, field flies. However, it's important to understand who's your enemy. 
If you understand how they complete their life cycle, how they behave, you can take a better decision when choosing the following tools. Once you know who's your your enemy, I would move to like that Manjula intervention, cut down grasses, clean the areas, right? What you we just discussed. And after that, I would focus on the strategic points. Uh, sedimentation lagoons, solid separators. We can attack those highly moisture areas, highly prone for fly development and highly odor areas with traps that can surround those areas by using other kind of attractants, pheromones or lures to catch those flies in a physical way, right? This can include like sticky traps, funnels, no return devices, which will reduce or negate the use of chemicals if we start early on the season, right? And we'll be focused, right? Because if we're covering a huge extension of area, it's impossible to cover like a dairy farm with these devices. However, it's a nice tool for uh, located or problematic areas. And Alex, I've seen some really, uh, you know, homemade cost-effective traps that are really just a five-gallon, uh, you know, dip or chemical container cut open and and uh, some water and a fly bait in there with some attractant. Uh, correct, like some some of these don't have to be buying some. A fancy commercial system they, they, they do exist but um strategically placing these traps around a dairy or calf raising area um could be a pretty cost effective um uh, tool but also needs to be managed right you need to clean them and, and manage them you can't just let them sit there exactly mark exactly those are like very good tools like people are always wanting to control their flies always try to use their creativity to to design these kind of traps. Uh, like you say, probably the downfall from those is like high maintenance. We have to be cleaning those dead fly bodies, dumping them, probably spread new scatter bait, keep them moist, right? Basically the moist is gonna be what's gonna be triggering those volatiles to attract those flies. Um, Moving on, probably we're going to jump into one of the most popular tools, which is the biological control. There's currently two huge companies in the market, Spalding and Kunafin. I think both of them are great. Uh, everyone's in love with those kind of products. Everyone loves the results when using those kind of, of control. And people's in love with those kind of uh control options just because they're not using chemical, right? It's environmentally friendly or that's how they uh, market these kind of products. In the literature, there's like a, a, a low uh, percent of para parasitic uh, action, like 25-30% however on the field. Like, even though we don't handle a lot of those numbers, like uh, managers, owners, people's always happy to use and can say something positive of the, about these products. So I don't know if it's a trend, they really work or what, but they're, they're certainly making a difference in this. Okay. And and then, you know, question that's often, uh, one, obviously it's really important to start those programs early, correct? So you're, uh, you know, remain or maintaining low lar larva populations and then, you know, reproduction. But then can you comment on the use of any, uh, premise and or animal sprays when you're using these parasitic wasps. Obviously, there's some concern there, but they can be 
used as together as part of the uh, pest management. Uh, when 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 the parasitic wasp are present, I would encourage the use of granular scatter baits again in concrete areas and key points. I don't like those massive releases of cypermetry. Probably they can be used whenever we have an outbreak of flies, whenever it's too humid or we cannot control them. However, I don't see the benefit of using that on a weekly basis just because the cypermetrins are going to be inactivated within a couple hours. So the knockdown effect is going to be huge, right? Whatever it's, it touches, it's going to be killed. However, the effect is not going to be uh, lasting for a long period of time. So that you can use like Cyanarox, Quick Strike, Quick Bite, Ajita, those kind of products that are commercially available in the States as well as in Mexico. Okay. So that's a really good comment there, uh, Alex, that I think maybe, you know, most people wouldn't necessarily expect. You you, you spray a chemical, a pyrethrin-based product, and you have this knockdown. So yes, okay, it works. We see dead flies, and then tomorrow we have a fly population back. So a lot of these products, as you're saying, don't have necessarily some long duration of action. It's a, it's a quick act. So you, you need to do everything else, or you're just going to have new flies come come fly in tomorrow, right? Exactly, exactly. And like like we've discussed in Britain, some of our uh, talks earlier this year, like there's no silver bullet. So the more the more tools we use, the better. Okay. Um, along the lines, uh, a question too um, is: I know uh, almost I think of it as an antibiotic susceptibility uh, test. You know, as a veterinarian, you, you you put bacteria in a plate and you have the little discs as an antibiotic, and does it grow or not? I know you're actually doing on a, a commercial basis for companies, EPA and, and companies making products, um, resistant testing. You know, what populations of flies are resistant to certain chemicals? Um, in that. How common is resistance? So, you know, a dairy farm in, in, in Texas, a dairy farm in New York, Mexico, what, what is it? I'm sure it ranges a lot, but are, are, are there, is there lots of resistance? Does that change through the season? Explain a little bit about resistance. Well, resistance has been documented since the 70s and 80s for pyrethroids and organophosphates, basically because we're relying on those two chemicals for the control of basically all the ectoparasites, right? Uh, whenever a product is not working, like the common response from the producer is that this product's not working anymore. However, there, there's a couple of possible options, right? The first one is that the company didn't formulate or or the product isn't, didn't uh, made it through quality assurance, which is pretty rare because those factories are highly technified nowadays. So that leaves us with two options. The first one could be misapplication, underdosing. Basically, these products are used or applied on a weight or are going to be dosed by weight, right? So we could probably be underdosing. That's some of the product, the problems that we find. The, the last one, and we focus on that one in our lab, is resistance. We've been finding resistance in all the Southwest where we... Uh, currently collaborate with producers and other universities, right? The way we assess this resistance is uh, using filtered paper bioassays, using serial dilutions. We start basically from lower to higher concentrations, and we basically can draw a line where these flies die at which concentration. And to answer to your question, 
yes, we're finding resistance on the field. To what degree? Like, it's hard to 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 say what percentages of New Mexico or Arizona or California are being affected, right? Because not all not all of the producers are like detecting these kind of problems. They just use more product or they just reapply on a more constant basis. However, this resistance, it's happening. It's hard to quantify. It's hard to measure, but it's, it's there. That makes sense. So I didn't mean to uh, take a detour. Um, do we, do we, I guess, so environmental control, uh, parasitic uh, wasp or biologic control, obviously we have the baits, um, uh, chemicals, uh, application of chemicals, insect growth regulators. I guess that would be another one. Uh, I guess those are described as feed additives. It could be IGRs. It's also like an oral organophosphate product. The most common IGRs are methoprene, diflubenzran, and the uh, oral uh, uh, organophosphate. It's a Bayer brand, Rayburn. Is the name. So basically, these products are magnific- magnificent. They're work. I have worked a bunch with these kind of products. Whatever it's inoculated with uh, fly eggs, it's not capable of growing under those conditions. Methoprene is a, like a juvenile hormone uh, inhibitor. So it's not allowing the, these juvenile phases to to be completed. The methoprene works as a chitin inhibitor, so the pupae shell, it's going to be disrupted, it's going to be destroyed, so these flies are not going to be viable. There's some evidence as well that some of these flies have the capacity to emerge or hatch, however, uh, they're not fully functional. So we're going to be reducing those fly po- uh, populations with the use of this product. And of course, the use of an organophosphate, uh, it's going to be killing all what's touching them, right? This product's going to be uh, impairing the continuation of the life cycle of these flies. But yeah, they're great tools. They're also described as chemical tools, probably instead of topical or on the premise uh, side, they're going to be ingested or oral. They're, they're really popular nowadays, and sometimes they ask me if I can use these and get rid of other type of control. Again, no, it's not a silver bullet. Here we're targeting the immatures. We need the scatter baits. We need the parasitic wasps. We need all the other tools to try to reduce those populations. I usually try to give this example, like flight control is like a vaccine. If the challenge is bigger than the immunity that you're providing, it's going to be overwhelmed. The system is going to be overwhelmed, right? Uh I think that's a really great example, Alex. I mean, so many times in, in veterinary practice, I, I've used that example. You know, this, this vaccine didn't work. We still have cases of pneumonia, what have you. Well, you know, we all know um, really well from our experiences, especially, unfortunately, from the, the COVID pandemic, right? A vaccine is not 100%. And I, I, I really like your approach of that, you know, there's no silver bullet, right? You really have to use integrated pest management because one product, one strategy is, is, is not going to um, solve your issues. Um, and, and I think that's a, a really important point for the, the audience here. Um, 
So now let's go a bit to the economics. I know you know you are, as you said, with these chambers, you're you can measure water intake, uh, uh, dry matter intake, you know, uh, outcomes that have economic uh, impact. So maybe you can look at um, adverse activity, which we think is bad, right? But we don't really know how bad that is on a cow. So can you tell us a little bit about your your economic modeling and what what you've done? Um, in that area? Well, we, we found in our lab back in the 80s, the, the decrement, decrements of intake from 100, uh, 50 to 100 grams on a daily basis, which seems not very significant, but when you multiply that by a huge herd by all the days that they're on feed, this can add up. That's as beef cattle, right? For dairy cattle, there's like a review from 2012 from the, Dr. Taylor and others. They summarize five or six of the most notorious uh, papers, including stable flies and dairy cattle. They concluded that these economic losses were in around 140 kilograms of milk per year. So that's basically 1% of the milk yield reduced by fly presence. This is specific to uh, stable flies in dairy operations. Let's remember that I work with several flies and the, the one that I'm more used to, it's the hornflies. We, we specialize in grazing cattle, right? And there's evidence that grazing cattle reduce their intake or their average, not their intake, more their average daily uh, gains in from 200 grams to 900 grams on a daily basis, right? This can, can end up the season with calves that are 16, 19 kilograms lighter at the end of the season. So I can't remember, but uh, 2018 or 19, there's, there's this research published and the return of investment was eight to one or something like that. Of course, they were using current price products and uh, cattle value, market value, right? But it's, it's a good tool to control for flies. Moreover, we're getting the pressure of the uh, common citizen, people that are not related to the ag industry, so they want to see overall cleanness and animal comfort. So this is where we jump in, not just productivity, but also animal welfare. Answer, I, I just <laughs> started talking about that. No, 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 that's great, Alex. And and I guess from that standpoint, you mentioned the, the public, the consumer, obviously, you know, lots of pressure in, in terms of like, uh, you know, the obviously sustainability, greenhouse gases, um, in some areas, my antimicrobial stewardship, reducing the use of antibiotics. I guess I haven't, but are we really hearing all too much about pesticide chemical use on the, on the, on the dairy or livestock side? Obviously, pesticides, chemicals, herbicides, you know, on the, on the food side, vegetables, um, crop production, I, I guess, do, do, where do you see that maybe going in the future? Because, and maybe you are, you know, hearing more of that from the general public or the consumer, but I guess that's something that maybe has been a little lower on the radar, I, I think, I'm not sure. Well, it's a hot topic right now. Everyone's concerned about that. What I can assure you is that there's a bunch of products that work on the shelves because they're not uh, safe for the human consumption. So 
even though we're assessing for efficacy and product longevity, if it's not safe for a human consumption, it's not going to be released for commercialization. So sometimes people neglect, neglect or forget all the research that we're doing behind the scenes to ensure that we're providing high quality protein at a decent price while maintaining safety for us humans, right? No, no, I think it's a really good point because I have um, visited some countries in my career with perhaps we'll just say maybe less stringent regulations on certain chemicals. And I have been impressed with the um, fly control, but often I've questioned or commented on the, the, the cost of that fly control from the people applying it and, and or the cattle side, right? I'm not sure I want to spend much time in those barns. Sure, they're, they're free of flies, but are, are those products that should be applied legally, you know? Um, so I think that's a great point. And, and you're correct. I think countries like, like, uh, us, Mexico, Europe, many other, many other, uh, countries, you know, there's, there's lots of regulation in place of what can be used or what can be used as there's export markets, right? So, you know, you need to maintain these standards for export markets also. Yes. What, what and when, like, of course we uh, focus on, on product performance, right? Well, we collaborate with several state uh, laboratories in the United States where we slaughter our animals after they finish their trials here and, and, and they collect liver, eyes, like viscera for further analysis. So we're making sure those products are working, are working not only for, for the, the producer, right? But for the consumer. <laughs> okay. So, so in your, in your research, actually, then where you're applying some of these chemicals, you're actually collaborating with, with, uh, looking at some of the residues of those compounds, actually. Exactly. Sometimes oh, okay. we, have, we don't have access, but we know for sure that those animals, those, those kind of products are never going to reach uh, the commercial area if they're not safe for human consumption. Also, and as a side note, like all the animals that we test new products with, they never reach back the, the, the food chain. So we're trying to work on the safest matter manner i guess for the for human purposes right we're a bunch of people and we have to to keep us well fed and healthy well that's great to hear i mean it, that you know there are products that can do a better job but but it's it's you know and they and you're working with some of those but that's what you are doing with your colleagues in in the in the entomology lab is uh making sure those are products are safe to the human and and the, the cow, the, uh, the livestock that it's being applied to. So, I don't know if, we, if we can make this as a side note, and I know you can cut it down. Like when you ask some of my research findings at the lab level, I was not able to tease out like intake differences. However, the stress of the horn flies reduced uh, bacterial protein when whenever they were annoyed by the by the presence of horn flies. I don't know if you can add that. <laughs> Which is basically so. So what? So what? What was that? Now you said that the the, the the what was the effect? Bacterial protein was reduced whenever animals were stressed or annoyed by the hornfly presence, right? So that's a metabolic inefficiency in my eyes. Where like more than fifty percent of the protein that reaches the small intestine comes from microbial fermentation, and if this is being reduced by, by these stress factors, it could be like potentially leading to economic losses. 
metabolic inefficiencies and all those kind of. Okay, so that that that's great. So our great information, not great, but great information. So as you mentioned, you have uh, ruminally cannulated animals. So so you're in your lab, you're demonstrating reduction in digestibility of feed products be due to fly uh, infestation? Uh, more, more or less, yes. I think total, total tract digestion was not disturbed. What we find disturbed was uh, a trend or a reduction in, in, pro, in microbial protein reaching the small intestine. We had uh, these animals were ruminally and duodenally cannulated, so we were able to track what's going on from the from the mouth to the rumen, from the rumen to the small intestine, and from the small intestine uh, to the fecal matter, right? So that's where we find like the most selling, right? Protein is the most expensive ingredient you usually use in our diets. So if we're finding these kind of inefficiencies at the lab level, I don't want to imagine what can potentially happen when these cows are challenged by weather, uh, high production conditions, and all those. Okay. No, that's really interesting, right? Because those are some, I think, the, the real cruel relationships that we often find when we do a research trial that we wouldn't necessarily expect, right? Like, how do you explain changes in digestibility in the intestine or absorption based on flies? Um, we don't necessarily have to explain it or no, um, but I think that's some really interesting information, right? We're always surprised by cause and effect relationships. Uh, so um, that's a, that's a really, really uh, interesting uh, interesting data, certainly. I, w- I wish we could tease out this, like, effects of the horn of the flies on our cattle productions, but a scientist, and in one of my article's conclusions, we usually control for so many factors that probably we're like removing all those stress factors in order to highlight what the fly is doing to our animal. So instead of stressing more the animal, we're reducing or removing all those stressors. So it's hard to find those those stress factors at the lab level. As we say, uh, horn flies are, are going to be the drop that, are, that is spilling the glass, right? It's this... This kind of stress by weather, by high yields, by like I don't know, bunk competition, probably dirty water, like not a good pen, and on top of that, they're gonna be bothered or bugged by a field fly. That's whenever I think they're gonna have their most detrimental like effects. Okay. Well, no, I had to. That's that's a really important point. I know now and again. You'll, you'll hear someone say, well, we need to push the cows more to make more milk. We need to push the cows more milk. And I always say, we don't push cows to make more milk. We, we release them from the stressors that don't allow them to reach high milk production, right? So I think, you know, think again, heat stress, flies, not having feed, uh, all, all those potential stressors. And, and therefore, you know, it makes sense, right? So, and, and on the economic side, we maybe don't need to explain academically how it actually negatively affects it it does we need to prevent it and 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 keep cows comfortable so it's time for our famous three the dairy podcast show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like diamond v because animal health deserves a healthier approach ab vista 
feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. With early detection in health, reproduction, and feeding, SmaxTech future-proofs your dairy operation. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is 3 to 6%, while subclinical hypocalcemia affects 50% or more mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research, Exelite offers a new approach that is build effective and the ZDUs. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. So Alex, I really appreciate your, your time this afternoon, especially I know you're super busy with your, your research projects and so forth, and uh, and then you know working with, with uh, producers on their, their practical needs. Um, I guess as we wrap up here, uh, uh, the, the dairy podcast show has uh, come, come to uh, be known for a few of those parting questions for our, our speakers. So I guess one was, uh, you know, in your animal science and, and, and uh, veterinary background, what, what is a, a resource that you use, you know, routinely, and that can be a publication website, what have you, or, or even a mentor, but what, what's one of, one of the resources that you recommend to, to the listeners here as you um, reach out to, to, you know, continue your education in dairy? That's a hard one, Mark. <laughs> I would probably keep in touch with the professionals like your team. I like how you guys communicate and are helping like the Mexican society spreading the word, assessing and consulting for Mexican producers. Just stay in touch with the pros. And I also like that you let people that specialize in such a small area share their two cents. I don't know if I explained myself. <laughs> no, no, I think that's a great. I just got back from the uh, ADSA Dairy Science uh, Conference in Ottawa last week and, you know, made it to plenty of talks and presentations, but didn't make it to a bunch of them. Why? Because you're in the hallway in the, in the, in the, uh, talking with folks. So you stay late for lunch, uh, cause you're talking with folks. So I think networking, right? Just, you know, that's, that's the resource of just, meeting with people, uh, catching up with old friends and colleagues and what's going on, what are people thinking and, and professionally challenging each other. Right. So, uh, I think that, that, that's really cool. Um, I'll say you hit just the nail. Like I just described when I, I, I was mentioning my background, I always wanted to be like a nutritionist, a consultant and my life just took another pathway. But however, having this relationship with you and your team, like makes me happy, makes me feel that I'm part of the industry, even though I work for a university. Like I share my two cents of knowledge. Yeah, especially in an area that doesn't have a lot of. Again, you, 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 you and your colleagues, uh, you know, are, are it's one of the few that are really doing this type of work. So I think that's that's really cool, right? There's lots of universities doing nutrition work and health work and and so forth. But uh, you know, this is this is certainly really unique. Um, when you're not connected and working, uh, yeah, and, and any anything recently, a podcast or, or documentary, movie, or something to uh, that you, that that has hit hit you that you want to share with the audience. Hey, this is something you know, self self improvement, self learning, or uh, anything come to your mind? I know you recently came back from a little trip to Mazatlan, the beach. How did you did you pick up a book or anything, or did you just disconnect completely? <laughs> I guess just relaxing and enjoying your family. I guess I love my job just because I live in the States. However, my hometown is three hours away. 
So I try to fulfill my own desires and dreams, but I, I don't get away from my family. That's great. That's great, Alex. And I guess one parting word. So, you know, what, in your experience, you work with producers, both beef and dairy, but, you know, what What sets aside, set, uh, aside or sets apart um, that progressive producer that really, you know, that stands out uh, that you work with? I believe the the people or the teams that want to do or take pride and pay attention to the small details. I wanted to conclude this podcast saying that like health, nutrition, and all these technologies that we've been using like BST, Monensin, growth promoters, the newest products have or were released in the market more than 20, 30 years ago. So nowadays we have to pay attention to these little strategies like flight control to increase those milk yields, those gain weights. So I would say that the most successful producers are the ones that never neglect or never diminish the potential effect that a single flight can have. Pay attention to the little details. Wow, that's great. That's great. And, and, and I would agree too. Right? I think it's the whole culture, right? And when you step on a, a any operation that's dairy to beef, calf range, just, you, you can kind of tolerate right off the attention to the detail. So, so certainly appreciate that. Great. Well, again, uh, for all of you listening, um, thanks for joining the Dairy Podcast Show. Um, we look forward to connecting again soon. And you're a great lineup of, uh, of uh, other folks to uh, record a podcast and, and share the information with you. As always, this is a great pleasure for me to uh, to meet new people and then connect with with folks like uh, Alex, who uh, you know, we worked with in the past and you know well. So thanks again, uh, Alex Sanchez, for for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Mark, and thanks for thanks to your team for the invitation.